You are now listening to the Green History Podcast, produced by Elm Film Studios and presented by AC the Historian. Assalamu alaikum, young man. How long have you been waiting for me here? A good student always arrives before his teacher. And how is your stay here in Riyadh so far? Mumtaz, the locals are very generous and affectionate towards guests over here. Hospitality is an ancient and proud Arab tradition. The Saudis have maintained their ancestral tradition very well in that regards. May Allah bless the people of Saudi Arabia. In any case, we are pleased to be your host. May Allah illuminate your face. Afwan Akhi, allow me to be your house for breakfast this morning. Yalla, Nuroh. There is a beautiful little cafe just across the road. Ya Rajol, intabih. Assalamu alaikum. Bil'idhn. Urid min fadlik tabak shawarma al dajjaj. Ma'abatata al muqliya. Shukran. Young man, what would you like to have for breakfast? Oh sorry, you should have told me then. So you're fasting today, mashaAllah. In that case, I will eat on your behalf. Anyway, take a seat, take a seat. So, you have more questions following our previous journey, do you? Well, that was to be expected. However, I would advise you to keep those questions to yourself for the time being. Do not probe into such discussions publicly. As a foreigner, that is not wise at all. You see, the history of Saudi Arabia is a very sensitive subject that is not readily spoken about in this part of the world. What the citizens of this country are allowed to learn and study about the foundations of the kingdom is really a very sanitized and whitewashed version of history. Personally, in all the many years of my residence here, I consider this to be the nation's greatest kept secret. So do not be surprised if the average citizen will accuse you of heresy for even questioning the official version of history. That's what they've been taught in schools and in their institutions. It's not really their fault. See, not everyone has the intellectual fortitude to question their own social conditioning. I suppose things are not very dissimilar in China, for example, or even in America, for that matter. Governments the world over understand the importance of controlling the historical narrative of the people. It is history after all, is it not? Pardon me while I take this call. Hello? Sabah al-khair ya kabir. Kul shay bi khair alhamdulillah. Aywa. Shu akhbarak? Mada yaani hatha? Ya haram. Wallah. Ana asif ya akhi. Walau. Akid. Usaddikuk. Wainak al-an? Huna, huna ma'a wahid amariki. Sharfuna ala kahwa. Hey, insha'Allah, insha'Allah. La taqlaq ya batal. 
إن الله مع الصابرين أكيد أكيد ولكن مش فاضي الآن أكون عندك بعد صلاة العصر إن شاء الله من شفك That's really sad That was Ahmed Munir, my neighbor He's originally from Sudan The most beautiful people on earth أحسن ناس Very educated and gentle people He just found out that his residency permits may not be renewed next year due to some pending changes in the immigration policy. It's all too technical for me to understand. But what is clear for me is that many of the manual laborers are from abroad. Though many of them may have settled here with their families for decades even, their future in the kingdom is always questionable. Anyway, the kingdom itself is going through many changes, culturally and politically, No one can truly predict what will happen in 50 years. Let us pray for the best, inshallah. Where were we? Oh yes, we were talking about the influence of history on a population. Like I said, nations guard their history very closely. Or at least the version that they prefer to share. Over here, when people talk of the history of the kingdom, The name of Sheikh Muhammad Abdul Wahab cannot go unmentioned. Hafidahullah. Wait, you do not know who Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab was? Have you at least heard of Wahhabiyya? Or what some people call the Wahhabis? On second thought, we may have to cancel our journey today. I cannot travel with someone who is this clueless about basic Saudi history. Then again, I may have overestimated your grasp of history, but I should not underestimate your willingness to learn. Here's what we'll do. Let me give you an introduction on the subject, and when that is done, we can make arrangements to travel in time and visit the founding fathers of Saudi Arabia. It just doesn't make any sense for you to go there without having the least bit understood the history and legacy of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab. Ah. The food has arrived, just in time. Don't mind me at all. Anyway, let us start from the beginning, shall we? Young man, before we talk about the Al Saud, or about the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, one must first begin with the name of the ideological founder whose vision has shaped the entire movement. Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He's a very central figure in the history of Saudi Arabia. Everyone knows his name here, and he's highly regarded. His legacy inspires much debate and contention within the Muslim world in general. This is due to the fact that his campaigns across Arabia resulted in much conflict and bloodshed. In essence, he was a revivalist who sought to purify the Muslim world of the superstitious and heterodox practices. At least what was perceived to be such. For example, he severely opposed the prevalence of venerating tombs of pious people and the act of supplicating to saints as intermediaries between men and God, or tawassul to be more precise. His ideas proved very controversial in the Hejaz during his day, but not anymore. As Saudi Arabia follows his interpretation of Islam to this very day. 
His exact date of birth is not known, however, many historians have cited the year 1703 as the most plausible date. What we are certain of is that he was born in the village of Uyayna, located in the Najd, and that he came from a well-respected family, Banu Tamim. During his youth, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab spent time in Medina, where he met a scholar and a teacher from Najd. His name was Sheikh Abdullah ibn Ibrahim al-Najdi. The two struck a friendship, and Sheikh Abdullah al-Najdi introduced Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab to the works of Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. You do know who Ibn Taymiyyah was, right? <laughs> Just checking. In any case, the work of Ibn Taymiyyah left a profound impression and mark in the mind of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, and he soon grew very fond of the teachings of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah himself lived and died in Damascus many centuries before that. While he was in Medina, Abdul Wahhab was introduced to an Indian scholar by the name of Muhammad ibn Hayya al-Sindi. This is an interesting point because Muhammad ibn Hayya was actually a Sufi of the Naqshbandi order. Ironically enough, this did not deter Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab from studying under him, and they even had a close student-teacher relationship. This may be a very little-known fact, but Sheikh Muhammad ibn Hayya himself emphasized the need to reject the veneration of tombs and saints. This of course appealed very much to the thinking of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, who was already very frustrated with the veneration of tombs in Uyayna. When he finished his studies in Medina, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab travelled to Basra in Iraq, where he spent time studying and teaching, approximately four years. He also spent a bit of time preaching in Iran in the year 1736. When he returned to Uyayna, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab began writing his famous treatise, which he entitled Kitab al-Tawheed. I'm sure you've heard of this book. He also worked towards reviving the teachings of Ibn Taymiyyah in his locality. He initially found favor with the Emir of Uyayna, a certain Uthman ibn Muammar. However, this was not a long-lasting arrangement and Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab had to leave Uyayna fearing for his life. See, his new policies had caused much offense. One of the local chiefs learned that the tomb of the companion, Zayd ibn al-Khattab, who was also the brother of Umar ibn al-Khattab, the tomb had been demolished by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his followers. The locals also complained that one of their sacred trees was cut down, again by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his followers. To cut a long story short, he left Uyayna and was invited to Dir'iya. The people in Dir'iya were won over by his call of Islamic unity and to need to have social unity based only on religious principles. This new model of governance made it possible for the disparate tribes of Najd to consolidate their ranks and to follow a more uniform agenda. Muhammad ibn Saud was the Emir of Dir'iyya at the time, and it was he who hosted the Sheikh, but the fruits of this coalition would bear mutual benefits for each party. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab needed Muhammad ibn Saud as much as the latter needed him. Together, 
they had plans to govern the regions through the establishment of a strong central administrative function that would be built upon the Sharia in order to bring much needed restoration and reconciliation in the area. They also launched military campaigns for the cleansing and purification of Arabia. That is really a problematic chapter in history. We shall discuss it another time. Nevertheless, in Dir'iyah, the local Emir, Muhammad ibn Saud, agreed to implementing Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's religious policies if the latter would endorse the legitimacy of the Emir's raids and conquests in neighboring Arab regions. One could not fight and kill fellow Muslims without legitimate religious grounds. Thus began what came to be known as the first Saudi state. Dir'iyah was designated as the capital. Now, don't get the impression that Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab agreed with and condoned everything that the Emir demanded from him. Fundamentally, their motives were not completely aligned. However, they had struck the perfect deal and promoted the unification of warring tribes in the Najd. Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab had somehow succeeded in leveraging religious teachings to, to shift the society away from one of tribal affiliation based on Asabiyyah and towards the more universal Islamic principles of brotherhood through faith Ukhuwa in Arabic. This new collective identity enabled the warring tribes of Najd to set aside their differences and to unite under the banner of Islam. The brotherhood that subsequently emerged from this effort soon began to expand its influence towards neighboring regions with a fervent drive to spread the true version of Islam across the rest of Arabia. Were the Arabs non-Muslims then? Well no, however, a very great deal of them used to visit tombs of righteous people and it was customary for them to decorate and venerate such sites. Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab criticized these practices and sought to warn people against it. Was he right in doing so? That is not a question for me to answer on your behalf. However, I will say this much. Extremism invites extremism. Any time a people exceed the boundaries and limits of religion by being too heterodox, there will always be another group who will react to that with an equal measure of orthodoxy. Thesis, antithesis. Poison and cure. But bear in mind, too much medication is itself a form of poison. Eventually, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab settled in Dir'iyah and had six sons. There were Hussein, Abdullah, Hassan, Ali, Ibrahim, and Abdul Aziz. Abdul Aziz died when he was a young man. However, the remaining five siblings, they all followed their father's footsteps. Each one established a religious school close to their home and many students could study the thoughts and books of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah from them. The family of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab grew to be very powerful and they are to this very day a prominent pillar of the kingdom. Many of the most senior clerics belong to this family and they are collectively known as Ali Sheikh. But I'm sure we discussed this last time. Oh. So you have some questions about Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, do you? Go ahead. Tafaddal, bismillah. 
Uh, I must stop you there. Let us be very, very clear. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab was not a British agent. We must provide factual evidence when making such statements. Due to the legacy of his movement and the military campaigns that he inspired, many Muslims feel it justifiable to advance exaggerations and specious arguments. But that is not a genuine sentiment, young man. The theories and different stories floating about are so varied and fantastical that one would be best cautioned to remain silent altogether. One account even claims that Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab was working with a British agent whom he had met while in Basra. Allahu a'lam. However, let us stick to historical facts. Oh, and that is a valid point. I have certainly experienced the other side of the argument. I completely agree with that. Yes, yes, and I would suspect that many of those who advocate the notion that Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab was the savior of Islam in an ocean of innovation and disbelief, those people also deny or perhaps even justify the slaughter of a great number of pilgrims at the time, not to mention innocent civilians. You see, if you want to truly understand history and cultivate your mind, you must first learn to disabuse your mind of biases and favoritism. History is not an app. You cannot edit or photoshop, nor can you add filters to it. History comes with good and bad. The intellectually mature mind learns to explore both without falling into excess on either end. Do you understand? Yes, and you must understand why those who follow the other schools of thought feel such a way, wouldn't you? Understand that the legacy of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab is deeply controversial. Therefore, it must be explored from an intellectually sound basis and not from emotional perspectives. Would you study mathematics from an emotional perspective? So why then do we do that with history? Does anyone object to the fact that certain sciences were developed by ancient hedonists? No. We take the science that they developed and acknowledge that it came from them. You simply cannot go around rejecting historical realities based on your emotional response to those who were involved in history. Now relax yourself and calm down. Listen, if you really want to reach an educated, unbiased conclusion on his legacy, then seek the correct sources. No, do not listen to lectures on the subject if it is delivered by Saudi clerics. Neither read the writings of those who are clearly in opposition to his thought and methodology, because on either end of the spectrum, there are gross exaggerations and biases. You will simply not be presented with all the information necessary. For that, you must conduct your own research and study. One book that I highly recommend on the subject was written by Hussein ibn Ghanam. He was the only historian to have witnessed and chronicled the development of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's movement in person. The book is entitled Raudat al-Afkar wal-Afham, but sometimes it's called Tariq Najd, the history of Najd. Anyway, I must get back to the office to conclude some work on historical documents. Here, take this number. Call me next Monday at 9 p.m. I shall arrange for us to meet at a new location. I really must go now. See you later.